But as we, as we come now to chapter 3, there's a couple, obviously, more things that he's doing. But this, as we'll find out, I, this particular chapter is one that almost seems as if Paul adds it on without having planned to at first. You notice in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And you notice back, or if you flip over a page, um, he almost says nearly the same thing in the beginning of chapter 4 where he talks about, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown. And he goes on and continues. And then in verse 4, that famous verse, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And it's almost as if Paul was intending to somewhat close off his letter. And then yet he is here inspired to sort of go on and, and expound. And I would even say explode into even more joy that's found in Christ. Or if you could call it maybe perhaps an inspired tangent. A rabbit trail as we like to say. And yet this rabbit trail is not meandering. It's actually very much in keeping with exactly what he's been talking about the whole time throughout this epistle. Which, as we've said before, is Christ is our joy. We've been reiterating and been sort of hammering that theme home. And here, as he's somewhat nearing his conclusion, he sort of turns the corner and he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Find your truest deepest sense of hope and joy and belonging in this Christ. And it's interesting to me what he says as he continues. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Here he sort of confesses that this is something he's written about before, and he says it's not annoying, is essentially he could translate that word grievous. It's not irksome, it's not bothersome for me to have to write these things again unto you. It doesn't put me out that I have to repeat myself. As a parent, I would say that would very much bother me. <laughs> it is very irksome to say the same things to my kids when I've just literally said it two seconds ago. And yet Paul displays much more patience than me, it's not irksome, it's not bothersome to say the same things. He says, it actually, I would, uh, this is sort of inferring from Paul's words here, but he says, it actually brings me joy to say these same things to you. And he says, for you it is safe, for you it is uh, suitable, it's exactly what you need in this particular moment. Which I think speaks it speaks to me a lot, and I hope it speaks to you, that Paul is here so... Uh, 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 untiring. He's, he, he is not getting exhausted by talking about Christ. You get the sense that it just brings Paul no greater joy than with, when he can talk about Jesus and his relationship to him. He is, I imagine, smiling, which again adds so much weight to this particular chapter and this particular letter. As we've said before, he's sitting in chains. And yes, he's writing here about the joy that's found in Jesus Christ. And specifically tonight, what I want to focus on is this joy that's found in Christ as our object of joy and our salvation. Notice what he says as he continues. Remember, he's encouraged them here in verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord. And then immediately after this sort of opening statement, he says in verse 2, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. 
He calls these people that we ought to be aware of, that we ought to notice, that we ought to be cautious of, dogs and evil workers. These were indeed uh, new teachers, or not new, they were false teachers insisting on perhaps new applications and new interpretations of what the apostles had come to say, this is our doctrine. If you go to the book of Acts, you can read about all the times that the apostles met together and decided on certain things and were what filled their sermons. And here, these teachers that Paul labels as dogs and evil workers, he is saying they've added something, they've perverted, they have changed the doctrine that we have given unto you. Much in the same vein as he would write to the Galatians, he writes here to the Philippians, beware of those who would try and preach a quote, another gospel. As he says to the Galatians, there is no such thing. It's a false gospel. But regardless, he says, they're trying to convey to you something that sounds true, that sounds religious, that sounds very in keeping with God's word. But he says, they're nothing but dogs. They're nothing but working evil. And specifically these, he says, they're adding to those things that we have taught you. They're adding to the words of the apostles. They're adding to the words of Christ. And they're saying that covenant blessings, the blessings that are found as you are made part of God's covenant family, were dependent upon doing something in or to the flesh. And to these, he says, beware of them. Watch out for these guys. They are doctrinal vermin. And we need to watch out for them. And again, just pause for a second. As he is encouraging this church, the church at Philippi, to sort of batten down the hashes, to find security... And find rejoicing in the Lord. You notice he's saying, keep your focus on him. Be on your guard by keeping focus on the Lord. This Jesus, this Christ, as he's everywhere called throughout this letter, he was to be their singular focus, their primary and chief aim, and the object of all of their devotion and faith and worship. Again, we, he is sort of redirecting their aim, redirecting their focus away from all of those evil workers that are surrounding them and saying, rejoice in this Lord. It sort of reminds me of the Apostle Peter when he's called to walk out on the water, which is obviously a passage I would love to preach one of these days. And yes, there's a lot of literal things that are happening there, but there's obviously, I think, a lot of spiritual and we could say metaphorical stuff happening as well. That this idea that Peter is walking out on the water and his eyes are focused on Christ, he is able to walk on water, which is a marvel and a miracle in and of itself. And I think the passage is Matthew 14, but regardless of where it's located, I think what it says in that particular section, it says when he noticed the waves and he notices the storm and he notices the lightning and he notices the tempest on which he's walking, that's when he sinks. And I would say the same is true for any church, for any believer That as soon as those who are barking at us, as soon as those who are trying to drag us into other directions get our attention, that's when we falter and sink. And you can sense the same here with Paul. Be aware of them, but keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus, Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord. And this is a message he is saying, I'm not bothered by giving it to you over and over again because you need it over and over again. Rejoice in this Christ, the Christ who is the object of your joy. And then he continues. I love what he says in verse 3. 
Because uh, to understand, I think, verse 3, you have to sort of keep verse 2 in mind. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Notice what he says. For we are the circumcision. And I mean those emphasis, I, I mean to emphasize it in that way. Notice he again, he says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You see, this verse is a direct rebuttal to those that he calls in verse 2 the concision. He calls them this, which I think, no doubt, if any of those who would be a part of this group got this letter, they would be very much offended by this word. It's a word which literally means mutilation. So basically, those false teachers that were teaching that you, if you wanted to believe in Jesus Christ and become a part of the covenant, you didn't just have to have faith. You had to have faith and be circumcised. You had to have faith and you had to follow the Mosaic rites and rituals of the law. To them, he's saying, you are nothing but mutilators of faith. Beware of those who would mutilate your relationship with Jesus Christ by adding something to what we have already told you is true. In Paul's mind, any sort of physical demand that was put upon someone, put upon someone who is coming to the gospel in faith was akin to bodily vandalization. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's calling these people. Beware of these who would mutilate the doctrine that we have given to you. I imagine Paul, as he's writing, he's just stirred and he's, he's, he's getting stirred up. He's getting fired up, so to speak. You could say he's getting on his soapbox. And this sort of frustration pours out of him. And such, I think, is what makes this verse so noteworthy. Because to these who are saying, you have to have something else. You have to have faith and something else. He says, no, we are the circumcision right now. Notice, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You, if you believe in Jesus, he's essentially saying, you are part of the covenant right now, immediately, upon faith. Notwithstanding and not even counting any of those sort of deeds or ceremonies or any of those rites that other people are saying that you need to have. He says, no, you are part of it right now. You're part of the covenant family of God. Yes, without following those rites and rituals that they are demanding of you. There's no extra stipulations. These dogs and evil workers were adding extra sort of fine print onto this doctrine that the apostle has preached. And as I love to say, there is no fine print when it comes to the gospel. I always, I'll give this illustration again, and you maybe have heard it before, and maybe you're tired of hearing it, but like Paul, it's safe for you, (laughs) and I don't bother in repeating it, which is, I love those car commercials, when they say, here is the best deal ever, bring in your clunker, junker car, and we'll give you a brand new one for free, basically. That's what the deal sounds like. It sounds too good to be true that these car ship dealers would give us something that would, it sounds too crazy, and it is, because then at the end of the commercials, they have those really fine print that the guy reads a million miles an hour, and in those fine print, if you pause and try and read it, it's all the stipulations, all the things that you have to meet, the qualifications uh, of getting this deal, which basically makes no one able to be qualified for it. (laughs) 
So they're advertising something that they don't even have to back up and give you because of all of the stipulations, because of all of the fine print. Which is to say, to make the, bring the point home, I would say, there is no fine print when it comes to this doctrine of faith. You believe, you repent of your sins, and you believe in Jesus as your Savior, and Paul would say to you, you are part of the covenant right now, immediately upon faith. That's what he's saying to these beloved Philippians. Philippians who were not Jews. They were not part of the covenant under the old sort of Mosaic rites. And to them he says, you are part of the circumcision. You are part of this beloved family of God right now. And to prove this point, to prove this idea that confidence in the flesh is a bad idea, he moves on to sort of tell his own story, which is another thing that Paul never tired of saying. If you look at the book of Acts, I think it's repeated some three times. His story of coming to faith. He repeats it here, and then he repeats it in Galatians as well. And he talks a little bit about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as well. Which is to say that he loves telling this story and is fundamental to understanding who Paul is and what made him tick, we might say. Notice what he says. Or let me read verse 3 again so you can kind of get into it because it's connected to both. Notice what he says. We are the circumcision right now which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh. I have more. And then he goes on to list all of the ways and all of the reasons why, if he was given over to his flesh, he might have confidence therein. Notice he says, I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those... I counted loss for Christ. Essentially, we can summarize this passage this way. If anyone thinks that they have something on which they can stand, any leg on which they think they can have confidence, I have more than that. My resume is better. That's basically what he's talking about here. My resume of confidence in who I am is better than anyone else's. I have pure Hebrew blood. I've been brought up in the strictest of the Jewish schools of religion. I followed all of the letters of the law. And no one can outzealous me. No one can outdo me when it comes to passion for these things and for these letters of the law. And by rights, Paul is true. He, He's speaking true things. When he says, if anyone thinks they have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Because I have more reasons to. And yet he makes that bold and amazing statement in verse 7. Yet all of those things. All of those things that would be an advantage to me. That would be beneficial to me in some way. Yes, all of those things I count as loss. And again, this word loss is a little bit lost to us, I might say, when it comes and it's translated here in the English. Because what he's saying, they are damaging. It is detrimental for me to find confidence in those things. It's damaging and detrimental to my reunion with the Lord Jesus Christ to have confidence in those things. I notice, I think again, 
That Paul is, he has those men, those evildoers, those dogs, those, those he would call the concision in mind. Because remember, these were the teachers who proclaimed that your spiritual life, that you and your life with God's Holy Spirit could be inaugurated by something you do to your body, by physical effort. And these he's saying, they're desecrating the gospel by saying this, by preaching this. And in fact, he goes on to say that they were hoping in something that was actually considered nothing but rubbish. Notice verse 8. He says, I count all things lost for Christ, yea, doubtless. And I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him. This to me, is the full sort of outcome and effect of Paul's, we could say, Damascus Road experience. We don't have to read it, but if you read Acts chapter 9, God in his son Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected, and this is his glorified image, appears in the flesh in front of Paul on that road. Remember, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? As you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. And of course, we know that this, this Damascus Road experience brings Paul to faith. As he comes face to face with the glorified Messiah, the glorified Christ. And I think what's going on as he's explaining it here, he has, has, uh, has had a witness, a first-hand uh, sort of opportunity to see the all-surpassing worth and, and majesty of Christ alone. Which has made all of the supposed brilliance, all of the supposed superiority of his resume just pale in comparison. He has seen Christ. And he says everything else is loss. And actually we could just be even more grotesque. It's refuse. It's manure. That's how stinking it is to him. It's nothing but a pile of manure. As the the prophet of Isaiah says, he says, my righteousness is as filthy rags. Paul has come to that conclusion through a first-hand witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is inferior. Everything else pales in comparison to this Christ. And so, again, once more, stick with Paul's point as he's been going through this. Rejoice in Christ because he is your object of joy. Beware of those who would try and swindle it, who would try and steal this joy away from you by adding something to it. Those who would say that you have to do something else in order for this to become true for you, they are nothing but spiritual swine who are reveling in the righteousness of their own making. And the reeking of confidence in the flesh. (laughs) Paul doesn't have a lot of nice words for these types of teachers. They're dogs and evil workers and spiritual swine. And here Paul would say, I've left that all behind. Notice verse 8 again. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. 
And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You see now, Paul's entire understanding of religion and righteousness and true faith has been turned on its head. All because he goes back to that Damascus Road experience that he has and everything that, his, that Christ's spirit has infused him with. Which is namely a profound understanding that his resume is nothing. It counts for nothing. When it comes to faith in Christ. The only resume that counts. The only resume that has merit. The only resume that stands when it comes to matters of faith in eternity. Is the resume that Christ gives him. Notice he says. I, I don't want to be found having or clutching my own righteousness. Which is of the law. But that which is through the faith of Christ. Is the righteousness of God. There's echoes of Romans chapter 1 in this particular passage. But you see here, this is what that phrase, in my mind, this is what that brief phrase in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord, fully contains. Rejoice in the object of your saving joy, this object of saving rejoicing, this Christ alone. So for this church, rejoice in the Lord wasn't just a pithy little phrase to throw out. It was indicative of who they were. Their entire lives were bent or ought to have been bent around this phrase. It was their calling card. Rejoice in the Lord of your salvation. In the Lord of your gospel. The Lord of this wonderful good news which says that heaven's doors have been opened because the heaven's son has opened them. Here this is what I think Paul is getting at throughout this passage. Christ as the object of our joy. Particularly here, I would say, the object of our saving joy, which means that any and all other avenues by which we could have confidence of our salvation are made to be seen as nothing but a wobbly waste. They have nothing on which to stand on. That old hymn, Christ alone and all of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is, is, is worse than that here for Paul. There's just piles of excrement. <laughs> piles of refuse. That's what all those of the grounds of salvation are to him. And he said, there's nothing I could ever do that could give me confidence in the face of eternity. And I think what makes this such a powerful point is that he's writing it from the vantage point as one who has done it. I've tried it. I had the resume. That's what he said. I've done all of these things. And I come out of an experience of realizing they are rubbish. It reminds me of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Who essentially is saying the same thing. I've sought for joy here and here and here and here. And I found it and nothing else but this. Fearing God and keeping his commandments. And what makes that whole book as we studied months ago. So powerful as it's coming from a guy who's been there. He's been there and done that. And he says, trust me, it doesn't work. Paul is saying the same thing. Trust me, it doesn't work. Faith in your flesh is nothing. 
For all his zeal, as Paul would say later, for all of his religiosity, he realized he has come to the point where he realizes he's a miserable, worthless sinner. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy 1, he's the chief of sinners. And I think he feels that till his dying day. I think that phrase where he says concerning zeal, persecuting the church, was sort of an ironic phrase in the sense that there was a sad, heartbreaking irony that he was so zealous for the things of the law that he was damaging the very people that he would one day serve and actually lose his life for. The church of God. The very people he was persecuting is the very people that he one day comes and serves and pours out his heart for. Which to me is an amazing thing that I think Paul kept with him throughout his whole life. You can read in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how worthless he is as an apostle because of that very point. I think it haunted Paul till he died that he saw brothers and sisters in Christ put to death by his own order. And I think here he realizes that if he tried to bank on anything he could accomplish... He was banking on nothing but rubbish. For Paul, knowing this Christ was all. Notice that's what he says. He wants to be found in him, verse 9, verse 10, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Nothing else could compare to this knowledge of the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. For him, it was as if he was dipping his ladle in an infinite well. A well which could never run dry. He is always falling deeper into deeper caverns of knowledge of this Lord Jesus Christ. Which just infuses his soul with joy. And such is why he says that that I may know him. This is just my life's pursuit. And as he says there uh, in verse 12. uh, This is what I'll always be doing till Christ comes back. I like how he sort of ends. Or not ends. But continues this passage. Notice verse 12 again. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Essentially what he's saying here is that for all of the of the knowledge that I've been able to attain and and experience firsthand on this new life that Christ has given me, my friends, he says, I have not attained anything unto the perfection that wins Christ. He says, I've not attained that. Actually, I've been apprehended. I've been seized, literally, by Christ Jesus. He says, there's no point of arrival in the Christian life. Which I think just means this. There will never be a point when you can stop growing as a Christian. There will never come a moment when you are able to need something other than the gospel. I think that's a a fallacy sometimes we make sometimes. That we assume that the gospel is for sinners. And then once we get saved we need something else to sustain us. 
that the gospel is only for evangelism. It's only to be preached when we want to bring sinners to salvation. My friends, the gospel is for sinners, yes. And sinners are all that there are. And we need the gospel till we die. And I think forever we will be diving deeper and deeper into how this gospel changes our lives. This, I think, is what Paul is saying. I'm not leaving anything. I'm pressing on towards the mark, knowing Christ. It's a deep, deep well, this knowledge of Christ is. And he says here, Paul does, that I haven't figured it out. I haven't apprehended. I haven't seized anything of his own accord by which he could rest assured of eternity. In fact, he says that assurance was given to me as abruptly as Christ found him on that road to Damascus. And now he says, my former life, it's been left behind. I'm pursuing Christ alone. Because he has, I think, come to this point, this consummate realization that he has to distrust himself. Before any trust can be put into Christ Jesus. And this I think is one of the most important and fascinating aspects of this entire section. Which I think is this. Is that self-distrust is indispensable to our faith in Jesus Christ. Integral, I would say, is sort of crucial to understanding what it means to have saving faith is the realization that you cannot ever save yourself. Paul has just dismantled that whole notion. Any ounce of fleshly confidence is a fool's errand. It's trying to make a house on a pile of manure. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. Our hearts though I would say are prideful, to the point where we often resort to trusting ourselves. We resort to putting confidence in our flesh, as Paul says here. The concision, they're doing that. They're, they're, they're making it easy for you to have confidence in yourself. And Paul says, I do not. I think that remains one of the longest and hardest lessons we will ever learn as the children of God. Which is precisely that we don't have anything by which we merit anything from God. Our lives of faith. Our lives where we, I think we're constantly learning to declare our spiritual bankruptcy if you will. Which is a fight to be sure. In fact... Uh, the great commentator and orator F.B. Meyer says that exact thing in his commentary on Philippians. I don't have the full quote, but he basically talks about that very thing. How it's a fight that we wage as Christians to give up this idea that we can merit something from God. It often, perhaps it takes Damascus-like experiences for us to realize that our works are as rubbish. They're as filthy rags. Paul here has learned that, and this is what he's conveying to this beloved church. That as long as, that as, long as he lives, my confidence doesn't come from my flesh. It comes from me, as he says, being apprehended by Jesus Christ. I've been seized and possessed by him. And as long as you and I don't own up to that, our pursuit of this knowledge will be hindered. As long as we are clutching to this fleshly confidence, this pursuit of Christ, 
this pressing on towards the mark, the high calling of God, will be impeded. It's impeded by our pride, impeded by our self-confidence. Here Paul says to the church, leave that refuse behind. From now till eternity, press toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, which is simply knowing Christ more. He's the object of our saving joy here. And so may we too forever keep as the aim of our lives this object, that verse in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. May we keep that object in front of our eyes. I won't lie, that's a fight. It's a struggle. Constant things try and get in the way and bat away that object. Try and swindle our joy, my friends. Beware of those things which would come in and overwhelm or overtake this rejoicing that you can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. My brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, it's not frustrating. For you it is safe. And so it is with us. Let us pray.